Hi, you're listening to another sermon from Deep Creek Anglican Church. Let's pray. Almighty God, you are good. You are a good father. You are a great friend. And you call us to be a house of prayer because you want to talk to us and with us, listen to us and act. Be with us this morning as we hear Jesus' words and uh, change because of who he is. Amen. Recently, there has been um, a move of God in a college called Asbury College in Kentucky. And the move of God has been that the students have not wanted to leave chapel. Now, my experience as a chaplain uh, would be that it definitely would take a move of God for the students to not want to leave chapel. Uh, This is um, Asbury College has a Methodist background. There's a seminary, Asbury Seminary. They're uh, not the same place. Uh, But every uh, day the students who go to classes there are required to go to chapel. And one chapel service a couple of weeks ago, uh, students stayed. They kept praying and uh, worshipping can see someone's um, taken a video there. I assume that's on TikTok. Uh, day six of the revival at Asbury uh, and 130 hours of worship, just people coming in and out, uh, always some worship and prayer going on. And then uh, it got to the point where uh, so many people came from all over the place that they were also praying outside. Uh, the the school has um, resumed their formal classes and they've restricted those that are coming to worship and pray uh, to Gen Z, to young adults, college student age, uh, and they have rejoiced in what God has given. And they described the, uh, the, the atmosphere of the... Revival, the atmosphere in the chapel, uh, as being marked by a tangible feeling of peace, belonging, safety, kindness, humility, and holiness. And someone reflected that uh, God had been so kind in giving to this generation of young people exactly what they needed. A tangible sense of peace for a generation with unprecedented anxiety. A restorative sense of belonging for a generation amidst an epidemic of loneliness. An authentic hope for a generation marked by depression a leadership emphasising humility in relationship with power for a generation deeply hurt by the abuse of religious power and a focus on participatory adoration, being there, 
praying together for an age of digital distraction. Now we at Deep Creek uh, long for these things. We believe that uh, faith in Jesus Christ should be refreshing. And what could be more refreshing than uh, peace in anxiety and belonging in loneliness? And so a few of us from Parish Council were praying uh, about these things on Monday night. Longing for God to, as uh, Psalm 23 says, spread a table before us in the presence of all these enemies that come against us in this time, worry, uncertainty, anxiety, opposition, illness, the abuse of power, distraction, longing for the Lord to place before us the feast that we need to fill our table with his goodness. But what if the only way God can fill our tables with these good things is for Jesus to turn over the tables of what has called us away from the centre of life with him? What if the only way Jesus can add to us all that we long for is to subtract, perhaps in the most dramatic way, the things that are stopping his people and his house from being who they were meant to be to receive all that they could receive. Jesus entered the temple courts and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, my house will be called a house of prayer but you are making it a den of robbers. This story of Jesus cleansing the temple, this account, uh, is found in all four of the Gospels that we have in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. John has it in a slightly different position, probably because he wants to show that this characterizes what Jesus' ministry is about. In John's gospel, it sits at the start of John, Jesus has been at a wedding and he's turned water into wine. He's prepared the feast, the table before, he's brought the abundance and the next story that John tells is the cleansing of the temple. Jesus comes to add, but he does come to subtract to take away. In the Synoptic Gospels, in Matthew, Mark and Luke, uh, it sits in this place just before Passover. And at the end of Lent, we celebrate Palm Sunday where Jesus comes into Jerusalem riding on a colt or a donkey. And um, uh, it is just after that event that he goes into the temple and turns things over. He sees in there something which makes him 
furious, so furious that John says that he gets a, makes a whip out of, out of cords or rushes, not, not a leather whip, but something to shush everyone out. The temple, Jesus said, was to be a house of prayer. Now, we know that uh, in the Old Testament, the temple and prior to that, the tabernacle was the centre of the religious life and indeed the civil life of the people of God. Uh, it, it, it takes up a lot of words in the Pentateuch, lots of descriptions about how to structure worship in the temple or the tabernacle how to uh, build it, what it should look like, who should serve there. In fact, uh, some uh, calculations say there are 288 prophetic singers and 4,000 musicians employed by David to minister before the Lord in the temple. 1 Chronicles 15, to make petition, to give thanks and to praise the Lord day and night. This was the heart of Israel's life, and not just because it was a symbol that they were God's people to the other nations, this is what makes us distinctive, but because prayer and worship was good for human beings. Life was not simply ordered around the temple so that they would show people that they worshipped God. By worshipping God and praying to him, they were living out the call of God on every human life. They were fulfilling everything that God had created them to be. So Henry Nouwen says, prayer is not a pious decoration of life, but the breath of human existence. If you were at the uh, launch of our Psalms Bible studies, you'll have seen me butcher this uh, physics diagram. Uh, this is a picture uh, describing a little bit or attempting to come towards the theory of relativity where uh, objects actually interact with the fabric of space-time. <laughs> so if you have a very dense object, light simply doesn't travel in a straight line, it will curve in towards it. We know about gravity and things being drawn towards. Actually, the whole universe is sort of integrated and then when there is a great, dense mass in the middle, everything is drawn toward it. We talked about the Psalms, those 150 chapters in the middle of the Scriptures, being that drawing centre, that great mass which everything ought to be shaped around and must bring everything toward worship and praise and prayer to God. At the end of the scriptures in Revelation, and we're going to spend time in there later in the year, we see what God 
thinks about our prayers. When he had taken the scroll, the lamb, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, Jesus. Each one of the elders had a harp and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. Jim Simbola, who uh, wrote Fresh Wind, Fresh Fire, the uh, pastor of the Brooklyn Tabernacle, uh, says, what must God think of our prayers? That he would have them in golden bowls in heaven. That these are the things that John sees in the revelation before the throne of God. The prayers of God's people. The golden mass, if you like, drawing everything toward the throne of God, the prayers of God's people. So Jesus comes into the temple, supposed to be this place where prayer happens, where worship happens all the time. And yet he finds things that are drawing people away from the centre of life with God. He finds exploitation, consumerism, distraction, exclusion, and a new word I made up, mechanicalism. Bear with. Now, it's clear to us when we hear the story and we catch the words buying and selling that there was a great deal of commerce and business happening in this place. There was the exchange of money as people brought their temple tax uh, in all kinds of currency and it required to be uh, converted into the currency used there. There was, and this is nothing wrong with this, there were people bringing cash rather than lugging an animal for sacrifice, uh, Deuteronomy says that that's a fine thing to do. If you live too far away to bring your whatever <laughs> bull to the altar, you can bring money and you can arrange that when you get there. And so the commerce, the buying and the selling, was not in itself uh, foreign to what needed to happen there. It was part of the scaffolding, if you like, of, of the uh, sacrificial system. But you and I know that as soon as we start buying and selling, as soon as we start bringing business and income and commerce and competition into the things of God, as soon as we have those who make their living from the gospel, there is the great potential for abuse, for distraction, for exploitation. Imagine you have a bookstore, a bookshop in your church, good stuff, 
great stuff, helps people, is the scaffolding of the religious life. Read a book, get a prayer book, all of those things. And yet, I don't know about you, but I'm pretty drawn to buying stuff. And it's much easier to buy something than to come before the living God, vulnerable, nervous, feeling like a failure. And so I think that one of the things that this consumerism leads to is an idea of transactionalism, which is also not a word, or mechanicalism. Now, I said mechanicalism because I didn't want to say ritual or routine because I actually don't think there's anything wrong with rituals and routines. What I'm concerned about is that you and I are shaped in such a way, particularly today, but absolutely back then, that when I pay for something, I am done. Have you ever think, oh, I really need to do this? Okay, let's just, I need to eat better. What I'm going to do is I'm going to buy that book. Once I have bought that book, bring it home, I am done. Once I have paid my money to get my sacrifice, I've squeezed through the crowds, I've dumped it on the altar, the priest has done his thing, next, I am done. And the, the, uh, the problem is, the temptation is, that in transacting my time, my money, uh, whatever it is, I believe that I have done what God has required of me, and I go. They said to God, how come you're not accepting our sacrifices in Isaiah? Look what we're doing. We're doing it all. Because they said, we've transacted what you've asked. We've done what it takes. I've come to church. I've given my tithe. I've taken communion. I've done what it takes. Mechanical. One thing follows another, and I'm done. But of course, as Jesus said, as the prophets said, A transaction is never what God has required. Psalm 51 is going to come up again and again and again in Lent. Sacrifices and offerings you did not desire, a broken and contrite heart. And that can only happen in prayer. Now, of course, when there's business and commerce, when there's a transaction taking place, it's very hard to recognize that there is a person at the center asking to interact with us. But Malachi made this promise, and we see this verse applied to John the Baptist quite a bit in the New Testament, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. We know that one. What comes immediately after it in the promise? Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. 
The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come. John the Baptist had prepared the way and now here is Jesus coming to his temple, his father's house, yes, and his house. But Malachi goes on. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears in his temple? He will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. He will purify the Levites, refine them like gold and silver. Then the Lord will have men who will bring offerings in righteousness. And the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be acceptable to the Lord. So I will come, he says, to put you on trial. I will testify against sorcerers, adulterers and perjurers, against those who defraud laborers of their wages, who oppress the widows and the fatherless and deprive the foreigners among you of justice. But do not fear me. Consumerism and transactions, mechanicalism, if that is a word, so easily descend into exploitation. If you've got an opportunity because you've got a captive market, they have to buy the doves, they have to buy the goats. Very easy just to jack up the prices, making it so hard for even the poor to offer the sacrifices required by God, which were small because of their small income. Perhaps if you're exchanging money, you're doing a currency thing and uh, people are bringing their currency from all over, just easy to add a little bit on top. I think it's very likely that this was happening because Jesus says, you've made it a den of robbers. And when the Lord comes to his temple, he exposes this exploitation. Uh, the church since this time has never been exempt from corruption and exploitation, from people fleecing the flock. Sin has entered in at every point. And when I think about the way in which uh, the church is declining in the West, I wonder whether this is Jesus saying, was it only if I take things away that you will listen to me? Is it only if I turn the tables and drive people out that you will see that you cannot do this because it is my house and it should be a house of prayer? But when Jesus uses the term house of prayer, he's quoting Isaiah 56. And there's more than just exploitation of uh, Israelites, of Jews happening. There's the exclusion of the whole earth who are supposed to come and worship God. So Isaiah 56 says, And foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord, to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord, to be his servants, all who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it and who hold fast to my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain 
and give them joy in my house of prayer. This is foreigners. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. The sovereign Lord declares, he who gathers the exiles of Israel, I will gather still others to them besides those already gathered. Isn't this what Jesus, the good shepherd, said he would do? when he was gathering the sheep of Israel, but he said, I have sheep not of the sheep pen, and they will hear my voice too, and we will be one flock with one shepherd. But what happened in the temple was that the court of the Gentiles, this place where uh, the nations were welcome to come and learn and start to worship, was filled with business, with commerce, with exploitation, with consumerism. And there was no room. There was no room for the nations to come and to be gathered into the sheepfold. I wonder if you also heard the exclusion of the children in that reading. They're crying out, Hosanna, amazing things have happened, healings. And they say, please keep those kids quiet. It's just too distracting. And Jesus says again from the Old Testament, God has called forth praise from the little ones. They're all invited to pray. So the distraction really wasn't the nations coming in or the children coming in. Thank you. Pay you later. (laughs) But in fact, it was every single other thing that was taking place to distract the hearts of God's people from giving their full attention to the Lord. I had the greatest uh, roadblock ever the other day. Uh, There was a a black-faced sheep on the road between uh, my place and Warrandite. I was heading to a meeting, um, I think with Beck, and uh, it was, I don't know how it had escaped but it was just running all over the road. And there was about five people trying to catch it. And there was no, I mean, it was taking ages and they'd dive for it and it'd get out of the way. And it wanted to get back into its paddock. It actually kept like jumping against the fence and it obviously couldn't get through. It was distracted and going crazy and all of us just enjoyed the spectacle, to be honest, and none of us were mad that we were running late. But attention is what the Lord longed for as people came to his house and rather than giving their attention to the Lord, they were like that sheep, just everywhere, everything going on, the noise the movement, the transactions. But attention 
is perhaps our greatest resource. Where your heart goes, everything else follows. Where your eyes stay and land, there your devotion starts to flow. Mary Oliver, as she was telling uh, people to help kids get out in nature and notice the beauty, said, attention to these things, to the beautiful, to the ordinary, to the little, to the big. Attention is the beginning of devotion. And how much more so when it comes to the Lord God. We live in an an attention economy. Everything that is coming at us desires our attention. Everything that is on this device or any other is designed to maximize the length of time that my eyes are gazing at a post, at an ad, at an app. Attention is one of our most precious resources. And so when the church is filled with almost everything else but attention on God, Jesus is indignant. We could have great preaching, entertaining. I know my jokes are fantastic. There's not many of them in this sermon, just to make a point. Um, not because I couldn't think of anything good. <laughs> great videos we want, great music, absolutely everything, beautiful facilities, whatever. But if attention, if our eyes are not on the Lord, then we are not his house. And so as we conclude, I want to say that if God is subtracting things, He is also calling us to add. And there is no formula and there is no book to buy or thing to subscribe to. Lots of good apps and blah, 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 blah. The only way to pray is to pray. And the way to pray well is to pray much. If you think immediately, I should buy a, or I could do a, and then I could dis a, uh, and the uh, have those things been subtracted? The only way to pray is to pray, says Henry Nouwen. And the way to pray well is to pray much. So I want to tell you three things that have been, that are helpful, that I am trying to live with at the moment. Because I, as much as anyone, have my attention distracted. But I, as much as anyone, deeply long to have the centre of my life, prayer and worship. The first is talk and ask. Now this seems silly, right? I've said this before, I wonder if sometimes we think we've prayed about something because we've thought about it a really lot. It's just gone round and round and round in our mind, we've ruminated on it, we've really felt it a lot. But have we actually talked about it to God and asked him to do something? Have we requested? James says, you do not have because you do not ask. 
Maybe you've listened to worship music. Uh, Maybe you've come to church. But have you talked to God and asked him about it? C.S. Lewis in his Screwtape Letters um, where he's pretending that it's uh, two demons talking to each other, writing letters and how to distract and and destroy Christians uh, and they talk about prayer which they hate. And he says the best thing uh, where possible is to keep the patient from the serious intention of praying altogether. Fine. Uh, But if you can't do that, He must be persuaded to aim at something entirely spontaneous, inward, informal, unregularized, uh, an effort to produce in himself, if he's a beginner, a vaguely devotional mood. Like Coleridge has recorded, uh, to merely compose his spirit to love. Now, there are great saints who have progressed in praying much who can pray in silence, who can soak in the Lord, and that is prayer. But for you and I, maybe, let's just say me, if I don't talk and ask, it's far more likely to be my own thoughts or, as C.S. Lewis is saying, me trying to muster up a feeling of something. He says, instead of having him ask to be courageous, make him Feel in his meditation brave. Henry now and again says, do we have to become victims of our unceasing thoughts? No, we can convert our unceasing thinking into unceasing prayer by making our inner monologue into a continuing dialogue with our God, who is the source of all love. Let's break out of our isolation and realize that someone who dwells in the center of our beings wants to listen with love to all that occupies and preoccupies our minds. Talk about it to him. It doesn't have to be fancy. But don't just stay thinking about it. Talk and ask. Secondly, pray along. We don't want to be a place of mechanical faith. And sometimes we say we don't want to be uh, religious, which is right in the sense that we don't want to be just ticking boxes and doing transactions. We want to have a real relationship with Jesus But that does not mean that you can't have something written down and pray it. (laughs) The beautiful thing, actually, about the Anglican Church uh, is that it has turned Scripture into worship. That's That's what the Book of Common Prayer is. It is bringing the Bible and turning it not just into thinking, Of course, we want the revelation of God. Of course, that is the foundation. But it's put it in the center to make it worship. There are a billion books, things you can get, things you can read, services you can follow along. Pray along with something else. You don't have to have your own words. Uh, Peter Adam, who uh, some of us may know, a really faithful, amazing Anglican minister, writes out his prayers and he just prays his own prayers, not just like doing a journal, what's today, 
He writes out a prayer for himself on whatever it is that he needs to talk to God about and then he just prays that the next day and the next day and the next day until it's time for something else. That is good. That is great. Pray along. When we sing at church, make it a prayer. When someone's praying at church, say amen, attend, give attention. Pray along. And finally, be around prayer. I have never managed to maintain an exercise routine if I've just said I'm going to do it at home. If I, uh, I just, uh, what I'll do, I'll do couch to 5K because it's really cheap. Well, it's free. Uh, and, um, uh, well, the couch is the good part of that. And so then that's pretty much the only part. But if I am going somewhere where other people are doing the thing and uh, you're going to look like a real turkey if you uh, sit on the couch at the back of the class. Nothing wrong with sitting on couches at the back of church, by the way, Tavis. That's perfect. That's fine. Then I'm going to get more done. If you can't pray at home, if you get distracted, come to something where people are praying. Pray with them. Pray by yourself. Imagine it as going to an exercise class, personal training, whatever it is. I've never gone that far because that would be too successful and I just, no way. Be around prayer is the heart of our church prayer. Jesus said, my house shall be called a house of preaching. No. My house shall be called a house of music. No. My house shall be called a house of fellowship. No. My house shall be called a house of community and outreach. And No. My house shall be called a house of prayer. So let us then, as his house, do whatever we can to approach God's throne of grace with confidence, knowing that our prayers to the throne are in bowls in front of him like incense, knowing that as we do, talk and ask and dialogue, we will receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need.